Amen. Amen. Well, uh, what is it? Is this week five, four that we've been doing the, the live stream thing? They all seem to blend together. I hope you're um, I hope you're finding the good in it. I hope you're able to, uh, to connect as we worship. I know I'm learning to kind of make the best of it. I find if I park myself right close to the speaker, even I can't hear myself sing, and then I'm free to just belt it out, and I've got space around us. Um, but uh, it's just not the same without you here, church. And uh, looking forward to the day that we gather together physically. Again, looking forward to this afternoon and get to see some of your, some of your faces But let's, uh, let's get into God's Word this morning. Philippians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Um, there is nothing more awkward uh, than finding yourself in the middle of uh, someone else's argument. You ever been there? You ever been a guest at, at someone's house as the, the husband and wife um, begin to fight? And, and not just like playful banter, but actual angry, biting words, you know, shots fired across the bow clearly meant to wound and humiliate. Um, And if you're not careful, what happens? You get kind of sucked in and they're trying to leverage you to be on on their side against the other. It's awkward. It's horrible. It's a terrible place to be. Uh, And that's that's true in everyday life. Um, It's also true in the church. No one wants to be part of a church. No one wants to be in a church that's full of squabbles and quarrels and bickering and infighting. They feel like they're forced to take sides, get dragged into the quarrels. And, and, and that's just the, the practical reality, reality of it. It's not a nice thing, but there's also theological implications to that. A few times through the book of Philippians, we've run into this theme of the unity of the church. And uh, in fact, it, it runs through every chapter. If you're looking through it, you'll see it time after time. Um, but now as we move into chapter four this morning, Paul really gets pointed. He gets right to it. He directly and specifically confronts these two ladies uh, who are not getting along. Um, he goes right at it. It's shocking, really, when you think about it. Um, you would expect this to be listed among the things that no pastor should ever do. Don't, don't get in between two ladies fighting in the church, but Paul goes for it. And uh, so we're tempted just to kind of sit back and take out the popcorn. Like, all right, Paul, I'm going to watch and just see how this goes. Um, good luck. Um, but I want to encourage you, encourage us uh, as a church this is for us. There's something for us here that we need to learn as we see this. So turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible on you, um, run and grab it. Now's the time. You're going to need it. Um, Open it up. We want you to have your Bible open in front of you, accessible, so that you can see. um, Frankly, you can see I'm not making this up. Um, This is coming out of God's Word. I want us to be uh, together sitting under God's Word and not not my words by any stretch. Um, so Philippians chapter 4, we're just going to look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Your, your uh, Bible might be like mine where the, they make a big paragraph break between verse 1 and 2. Um, 
verse 1 is really a, a connecting verse. It could go either way. Um, I'm bringing it down to fit in with um, the bottom part, but I mean, that's just scripture, right? It all, it all flows together. Uh, and so we're just taking it pieces at a time, and that's just where I decided we'd, we'd split it up uh, on our way through. Um, but we see Paul calling out these two ladies, and, and really the church, and calling on them to walk in, in unity together, to have this, this gospel-focused reconciliation, unification in their relationships, um, to live in gospel unity, and, and really to, to live out this picture that he's been painting all along. He's been building this case of what unity is and the importance of it, and now he's saying, okay, get at it, do it. Um, So let me read this, and then we'll kind of break it down and walk through it together. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how specific it is, how clear it is that you you paint this picture of unity in the church and then you draw it right down to... um, practicality, and we need this, God. Lord, would you help us to see uh, your truth this morning? God, would you work through me? I pray that you would take the study that I've done and, and, uh, and, and Lord, the, the preparation work and, and that you would uh, fill that with your spirit and, and, God, that you would speak through me. Lord, if there's anything that I've prepared that needs to not be said, um, Lord, let it fall to the ground. Let those words not be heard. But God, your word. We want to hear your word. We want to be shaped by your truth. We want our church to be shaped and formed um, by this kind of gospel-focused reconciliation and unity together. So Lord, be building us up. Um, Help us to be transformed and shaped by it. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So looking at chapter 4, the, the first thing we see here in verse 1 is this just foundation. Um, before he gets specific and, and goes after these two ladies um, directly, um, he talks to the whole church. He calls the whole church, stand firm in love. That's point one. Stand firm in love. The command there is stand firm. That's the, that's the main verb um, that kind of rules over this. That's what he's calling them to do. Stand firm. And, and it's a command with this kind of military ring to it. It's the same verb that he uses over in Ephesians chapter 6, talking about the armor of God. Verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. It's a, it's a military term. It's, it speaks of, of battle. And so have that in the back of your mind. He's telling us um, we're at war. This is serious business. We're not playing games here uh, as the church. Christianity is, is not a, a stroll through flowery fields. It's a, it's a battlefield. And we need to be ready. We need to be soldiers for Christ. 
trained, prepared, focused, armor on, feet planted, ready to, to do battle. And, and you can see it in the context, in the English. I think it comes out pretty naturally, but, but in the Greek, it's very specific. Um, that, that word, stand firm, um, in and of itself is, is a second person plural. It's not about individuals standing firm. It's about all of us standing firm together. So he's not just talking about a soldier standing firm. He's talking about a battalion standing firm. The unit together, uh, side by side. And it reminds me of, of chapter 1, um, verse 27, uh, a verse that I've just really come to love. It seems like every time we uh, work our way through a book of the Bible, there's always that one surprise verse that I didn't really notice before, but but just comes to life, just stands out. Um, so we're going through Acts, um, Acts 20, 24. Was that for me, Paul saying, I don't count my life of any value or precious to myself. If only I may finish the course, the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Um, I love that. I want to be able to say that. Um, going through Exodus so far, it's been Exodus 31, 13. Um, after the Lord gives them all the instructions of the tabernacle and their religious service and all the things they're to do, 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 do. And then he says, um, you are to say to the people of Israel, above all, above all, keep my Sabbath. This be a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. All the, all the work and effort and things you're supposed to do, do those things, but above all of that, stop, pause, break, and remember it's the Lord that makes you holy. For Philippians, it's been this. It's been 127. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you are absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. What a beautiful picture of the church. That's it. That's, that's who we are to be. And Paul's drawing on that now. He's been laying that foundation, and now he's drawing back on it. Stand firm together. One spirit, one mind, side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's the army of the church. Uh, it's this picture of, of phalanx warfare. I've been talking about this a little bit last week in our, in our morning devotion series. That, that's how the Romans did battle. Locked together. They had these massive shields, and you'd have a shield in your left hand and a sword in your right hand, and, and you had to... Um, you protected half of your body and half of the guy next to you as you fought together. It was about a unit. It was all about the unit standing together. But notice the way he makes this command. He absolutely smothers it in love. He calls them his brothers. Now, don't freak out. I know it's 2020, but um, in Paul's day, that was a gender-inclusive term. Okay, He's talking to the whole church, um, and he calls them brothers. Why? Well, because if we're all brothers to him or brothers and sisters, what are we to one another? Brothers and sisters, we're family together. He's, he's linking us together. He's reminding of us, us of this bond that we have. And we're going to be um, painfully honest here. He, he, he hits this idea, you're all, you're all brothers, but, but some of us, at least it's conceivable, have siblings that we're not all that particularly fond of. Um, and Paul blows that out of the water. He's, that's not an option in this brotherhood. 
Okay, he says, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown. And then he doubles down. He, he comes back again at the end. Um, beloved. Now, you could argue he doesn't actually command them to love one another. Not explicitly, but, but I think he's pretty obviously making a statement here. He, he just told them back in, in chapter 3, verse 17, imitate me, brothers, follow me as I follow Christ. And then he begins to lay it on thick. Here, my brothers, my church, my, I love and I long for. Are you still imitating me? Are you still following me in this? Are you picking this up? Be striving together in, in this kind of love, church. This bond of, of brotherhood standing together. We, we stand firm when we stand side by side in this kind of true, meaningful fellowship. True relationships as a unit, and, and not just by conviction, though it certainly ought to be built on conviction, but, but flowing out of the bond of, of love for one another. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, and then he says, my brothers whom I long and I love for, and, and let's just follow the imitation chain up. Jesus himself explicitly commanded this, a new commandment, I give you what? that you love one another. And actually, he plays on the imitation thing as well. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. And then Paul's obeying that command and saying, love one another as I have loved you. So being a follower of Jesus means being a lover of the church. It's not optional, right? It's not, it's not a take it or leave it kind of thing. Do you feel this way about the church? Are you passionate in your love for the church? Here's the deal. This is how we stand firm. If this breaks down, if this falls apart, the church crumbles. This is how we stand firm. We stand firm in love. Um, this strange season of social distancing and, and all of the quirks that we're dealing with right now, um, this is a great opportunity to just kind of pull the dipstick on this and check. How's my love for the church? What happens when I'm, when I'm pulled apart? Uh, do I long for them? Do I want to be together with them? Um, or am I able to just leave that? Eh, you know, church is canceled for a while. No big deal. Do I have that kind of relationship with the believers in the church? And don't let a, a skewed cultural definition of love um, change the way, define the way that, that we love the church. It's not a passive thing. Okay, Love is not just a, a nebulous feeling. I either have it or I don't. And I'm just kind of waiting to see if I love the church. Why does Paul love the Philippian church. Where does his love come from? Well, he loves them because he's invested in them. He's poured out his time and his resources and his energy. He's put everything into this church. And, and so, yes, his feelings are absolutely there, but they're following his decisions. They're following um, this intentional decision and action to love the church. Let's go back to imitating Christ. How does Christ love us? He laid down his life. 
in selfless sacrifice for his church. He gave up everything for us. You want to grow in, in feelings of love for the church? You want your heart on board? Um, spend yourself in actions and decisions to love the church. Invest your life in the church. You, you love what you give yourself to. I have, I have two canoes hanging in my garage right now. Um, one is a whitewater canoe. It is a finely tuned craft. It is nimble and agile. It is tricked out with float bags and electronic bilge pumps and thigh straps and knee pads and, and all, the, all the trinkets, the whole gamut. The other one has none of that. It's a very simple lake canoe. Um, but I have spent countless hours on the water in that boat. I've had it for many years. Um, twice I've taken it all apart and sanded and stripped it down and refinished all the wooden gunnels and thwarts. I've, I've rebuilt parts of it by hand. And, and if I were to sell them, the whitewater canoe would go far and away for more money. If I were to bring you into my garage, you would look at the whitewater canoe and be impressed and not necessarily the lake canoe. But if a fire broke out in my garage and I had to choose between one of them, I'm, I'm grabbing the lake canoe every time. And only once the, the lake canoe is, is brought out and safe, then I'd go back in for my kids. I, I mean, sorry, keep, my kids are listening. Don't hurt my canoe. Um, the, the lake canoe wins every time. Why? It's less impressive. It's less cool. It's less shiny, probably less valuable, but but I've invested time into it. I've poured myself into it. It's uniquely mine. Invest in the church. Make the church part of you. Make it your central community. Who am I? I'm part of the church. This is my fellowship. These are my, these are my people. Make it your priority. I, I mean... Boy, I'd love to do small group, but I have this on that night. Well, why isn't I'd love to do this, but I have small group on that night? What's our priority? Uh, I, I, you know, I'd, love to, I'd love to go to church on Sundays, but it's just a great day to go shopping. Well, is, it, is shopping more important? Is that who I am? Or, or am I willing to sacrifice and, and commit to being a part of the church? Pursue building meaningful relationships with the believers here. And this may not be the fanciest church, the flashiest church. We may not have the best programs, the best whatever, but, but we're family together. That's what matters. That's what makes it uniquely us, that we're all pouring into this thing, connecting, loving one another. Do that through investing in, in small group. Do that through, through serving and giving. Come be a part of the prayer meetings as we're sharing our hearts with one another and worshiping our God together. Um, one of the really cool things I've been seeing God do through this season of isolation is a whole bunch of people working their way through the redemption life course, the, the, the membership preparation and becoming members. And so that's going to be a huge celebration we gather uh, together again is those who have joined us as members through this season. And uh, maybe that's you. Maybe that's something you can pursue. You say, how do I practically invest in the church? Well, you send me an email right now and say, all right, John, I'm in. That's what membership is. It's just saying, this is me. This is my family. I'm in. Let's do it.
Invest in the church. And yes, there's a cost to it. It takes time and, and effort and there's, there's, there's vulnerability. Um, but the biblical term for that is love. That's what it's about. That's how we stand firm in love for one another. Are you invested heart and soul into the church? We ought to be. And that's what makes verse 2 hit with such a a jarring crash. He moves from from expressing his love for the church and the importance of standing firm together as brothers and fellow soldiers and then calling out these two women who are not getting along, who are not living this out. So look at verse 2. He says, I entreat, I plead with Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So first he says, stand firm in love and then seek unity in the Lord. Now we don't know really anything about these two ladies. Um, Paul tells us in verse 3 that they, uh, they labored by his side for the sake of the gospel. So that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, if you remember, Acts 16 is where the church in Philippi first began. Paul came there. He was the first missionary with the gospel into Philippi. And, and Paul's general uh, practice was to go into the synagogue and preach the gospel there among the Jews. But in Philippi, there was no synagogue. Um, you had to have a minimum of 10 Jewish men, mature men, to start a synagogue. And evidently, they didn't have it. And so plan B, if your city didn't have a synagogue, uh, is you would go down to the river um, on on the morning of the Sabbath for a time of prayer. And uh, so that's where Paul went, down to the river um, to see if there was a prayer gathering. And uh, what did he find there? He found a bunch of women. And maybe, we don't know, but maybe Eodia and Syntyche um, were were part of that group of ladies gathered there. Um, It's possible But clearly, they're well-known in the church. Um, I I think, just looking at this, I think he names them, um, not not trying to shame them, but but because everyone knows what's going on. Everyone knows them. Their their dispute um, is common knowledge. And so everyone's just kind of been waiting for the other shoe to drop here. As Paul talks about unity, they know this is the next application. Um, We also don't know what their disagreement was about. Um, obviously, it had become a big deal, whatever it was. Um, the whole church knew about it. Um, but it also seems clear that, one, it's, it's not a doctrinal disagreement. It's not a disagreement about the truth of, of who God is or, or how to be saved. It's not a doctrinal disagreement. Um, and, and I don't think it's a disagreement having to do with sin. And the reason I say that is from what we know of Paul, as we read his writings, um, if it had been doctrinal or sin-related, he would have settled it, right? He wouldn't have left them, hey, you figure out the truth on your own. No, he would have said, no, this is truth. This is who God is. This is what salvation is. This is the gospel. He would have settled it. And if it had been sin, he would have called out the sinning party. Yodia, cut it out. Syntyche's right. Stop sinning. Um, But he doesn't do that. Um, He leaves it for them to to sort out. He says, you ladies, agree in the Lord. Figure this out. And and so uh, I think looking at that, we we can say this is some kind of personal issue between them. It's some kind of uh, relational um, disagreement on on preferences and, 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 uh, and personality. 
but it had grown big enough. It's threatening the church. It's making people feel awkward. It's causing a rift in the church. No doubt people are feeling pulled to either side. Who do I line up with? And, and, and it's ugly. It's worth noting as well, looking at this, um, these are ladies who served alongside Paul in the gospel. These are not immature believers. These, these are ladies who, who served alongside Paul. And sadly, divisions like this, these personality conflicts, personal rivalries, um, differing opinions that get blown way out of proportion, sadly, it's not relegated to the immature. These things happen um, even among the mature, even among leaders in the church. And, and, and so what does Paul do? Well, he tells them, agree in the Lord. Why in the Lord? Why does he tag that on there? Does he just kind of throw that in uh, in a hollow kind of way? What's he trying to say? Well, he says in the Lord because that's everything. That's, that's absolutely key to his command. In the Lord is both the motivation and the means by which we come to unity. All right, It is the why and the how. And so first it's the motivation. It's the why behind their unity, the reason they can and should agree, uh, because in the Lord they do have unity. They do have a bond together beyond anything else. The gospel lays this this foundation for our love for one another as the church, and, and it supersedes everything. Think about this. We're born as sinners, as rebels against God, charging our own way, deserving of his wrath. The Bible says that we are dead in our sin because we are spiritually dead and cut off from God and we are running toward eternal death, the wrath of God that we deserve. Jesus came and died that we might have life. On the cross, he bore our sins. He took on himself the penalty that we deserved. The innocent son of God was treated as guilty and experience the wrath of God so that we as guilty sinners could be treated as innocent and and experience the grace of God. We were brought from from death to life, made from rebels to children of God. What could be more defining of who we are? What What could get more to the root of our identity than that kind of absolute radical transformation? And this goes back to Paul addressing the churches as brothers, as this family in Christ, because born again in Jesus, we have more in common with one another than than any natural-born identical twins will ever have. We are saved by the grace of God, given this united identity in Christ. That's the foundation of our unity. It's the number one reason why we ought to agree and and get along together. Um, Paul kind of plays this out uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. And put that up on your screen here. He says, um, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body 
and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Just run the logic on that passage. Let me leave it up on the screen for a minute so that you can, you can look at that. Um, there's one body of Christ. That's us. There's one spirit, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in each of us. There's one faith that we all hold on to, one baptism in which we all declare how Christ has made us new, and there is one God who is the Father of all of us. And so it's out of that then that Paul says, walk, live in such a way that is worthy, that is appropriate as a response to this calling. And what is that? Well, it means humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And then listen to this, maintaining maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We aren't called to create unity. God has given us unity. He has made us one in the Lord, and our call is to maintain that, to keep, us, to, to, to keep it, to, to live out what we've been given in the Lord. And, and, and so he's, he's pointing us back to this foundation of our unity. There's someone in the church that, that you just have a hard time with. You don't see eye to eye with. In fact, you never see eye to eye with. They, just, they rub you the wrong way. Their preferences, their ideas seem to just always be completely counter to yours. Stop and think about how you're united to them. You both have repentance of sin and faith in Christ. You both have been justified, your sins washed clean. You've both been adopted as children of God, made part of his family, the church filled with his spirit. You're both being formed and shaped into the image of Christ. And that that is the motivation for our unity. That's the foundation then that becomes the means for our unity. Okay, so, so that's the, the foundation, but it's also the tool that we use to maintain what we've been given. When you have those moments of frustration, those moments of tension, when, when, you, when you can't understand how on earth they could see it so wrong, how they could possibly get be so dense, so obnoxious, put it into a gospel perspective. You have the bond of unity, so start there and let that define your relationship. And those those differences that we have get pushed way out to the margin. They, they, They become much, much smaller in our perspective. Think about it with the gospel in mind. Ephesians 4.32, Paul uses this concept. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiving one another, remember, as God in Christ forgave you. Think about what God did in Christ to reconcile you to himself. And think about that in comparison to what he's asking you now to do to be reconciled to your brother. It's the parable of the ungrateful servant. 
He was forgiven millions of dollars by the king himself and let go free and then runs into his, his body, his fellow slave, and says, hey, you owe me. You owe me 50 bucks, and he has him thrown into jail. Now, it's important to mention there are issues that should divide us. There are things that we need to stand on. And if this is a debate over the, the deity of Christ or, or salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone or the truthfulness of Scripture, if it's a, a disagreement over key doctrines of the faith, or if it's about unrepentant sin, ongoing unrepentant sin, yeah, we have to stand on the truth. We can't give on those things, right? We're united in the Lord. And so if one would step out of that position in sin or in error, we we can't unite with them over there. We're united in the Lord and He is the truth. But over issues of preference, personality, even instances of sin where there's repentance, the only way those things are able to cause division in the church is when the church forgets the gospel. That's the bottom line. That's the only way. We might speak the gospel. We might declare it boldly and powerfully. We might have it as a banner hanging over the door of the church. But if we're not living in this way, kind, tender-hearted toward one another, forgiving one another, actively seeking to, to give and receive forgiveness, working toward reconciliation, maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If we're not doing that, then functionally we've set the gospel aside. We've forgotten it. We've left it out. We're not just called to know the gospel and to speak the gospel. That's not enough. We're called to live lives worthy of the gospel shaped by it, formed by it. And a church that has the gospel on their lips but continues in divisiveness, continues being self-seeking with with infighting and backbiting, they're not faithful to the gospel. No matter what they say with their mouth, they're, they're not faithful to the gospel. So the only way these divisions will cause rifts in our church is as we forget the gospel. Paul's already set this up in Philippians. Think about it. You can see one of these ladies will pick on Yodia, firing back. But, but Syntyche's ideas are ridiculous. She's just, she's just flat out wrong. She'll make a mess of the church. It's, it's nonsense. Her ideas are terrible ideas. And Epaphroditus, who was the one delivering the letter, um, would maybe just cough and say, <clears throat> shall we start back at chapter 2, ladies? Flip back with me to chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, Any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You still want to make that argument? You still want to come back and say, well, she's just wrong. That's what the gospel ought to produce in us, the mind of Christ. Not considering your own interest as primary, but like Jesus, taking this posture of a servant, literally a slave toward others. Slave doesn't fight back. Slave just says, yeah, sure, let's do it. If we're all living like that, how could a church split over personal matters? It just, it can't happen. It's not possible. And here's the cool thing. Um, there's a word that, that, that is consistently repeated through um, the verses here of chapter two. He tells them, be of the same mind. And then at the end of verse two, be of one mind. And then at the beginning of verse five, have this mind among you. Well, what, what mind? He's, he's building this tension. Be united, have the same mind, have one mind, have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. And the word there for mind is is phroneo, which is the same word that Paul uses then over in chapter two, or chapter four, verse two, translated agree. Literally, he's saying to Iodia and Syntyche, have this mind. What mind? The mind of Christ. Consider others more significant than yourselves. Be like him. Lay down your life for the good of others. And they're they're both to have the mind of Christ. And the the closer they both grow toward Christ, the, the closer they grow toward one another. Agree in the Lord, not not trying to to get the other person over to your way of thinking but both striving together toward his way of thinking. And what's his way of thinking? It's serving others. It's sacrificing for others. It's laying down my rights for unity in the church. Are you being shaped and formed by the gospel? Are your eyes fixed on Christ and what he did for you? Is your mind being transformed to be like his mind? And, and it's so hard, it's so tempting to think, well, that's not fair. If I take the role of a servant, if I consider his opinions and his preferences more than my own, if I, if I give up to his dumb ideas every time, then, then it's always going to go his way. I'll lay down my weapons when he lays down his. I'll take on the mind of Christ when he does. Really? Is that how Christ dealt with you? Did Jesus say to you, I will lay down my life for you as soon as you stop sinning? No. No, he was bowled over by your sin, taken advantage of by your sin for your good. That's the whole point. Yes, Christ is asking you to lay down your rights. 
even to be bowled over and taken advantage of, standing firm in love for the sake of unity, for the sake of reconciliation. Do you have the mind of Christ? Do we treat one another this way? Again, is there tension between you and and someone else in the church? Let's just be honest. We are a bunch of sinners lumped together. I would be shocked if there isn't, right? We need to, what, what do you need to lay down? What do you need to just let go of? What do you need to learn to just agree in the Lord? That's standing firm in love. That's seeking unity in the Lord based on the truth of the gospel and and remembering the gospel, being shaped by the gospel. And then finally, verse 3, he says to, to be standing firm in love, seeking unity in the Lord, and then seeing through the eternal lens. See this in light of eternity. Verse 3 says this, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Um, There are a couple different threads, obviously, that we could kind of chase through this passage. Um, And I want to get to the idea of of seeing things through that lens of eternity. But but first we need to ask, who's this true companion? And, And how does he play into this? Once again, we, we really don't know who it is. Um, it's possible um, that companion was actually his name. And so Paul's kind of doing a play on words with his name, my, my true companion. Um, I don't think that's the case personally. My guess is that Paul is just addressing one of the elders in the church that he greeted in, in verse 1. Um, a, an elder who apparently was prominent enough that everyone kind of knew who he was, who he was talking to. He's a, a significant leader in the church. Notice how Paul expects the church to operate. He's written them this letter. He's given them all these instructions, but he doesn't just expect them then to step back, right? And say, well, Yodi and Syntyche have heard it. It's written down for them to see. It's clear as day. Now it's up to them. They need to deal with it, right? I'm, I'm not my problem. That, that's what we would do, right? That's, that's the Canadian way to deal with it. And... and and, and that would be polite. Not my problem. I'm not going to meddle. It's not for me to tell anyone else what to do. Everyone should just kind of mind their own business. And, and if they're to ignore this command and continue bickering, what do we do? We just kind of awkwardly pretend like it's not happening anymore. But no. No, Paul commissions this companion of his, this fellow worker in the church. And he says, okay, you're up. I've given the command, now you take it and help these women. The word help there is actually a very strong word. It carries the idea of seize, grab them. Make sure this takes hold of them. This is so un-Canadian. This is not Western culture approved, all right? We need to get this. And this is where that eternal perspective starts to to really come into play. Remember from last week, um, chapter 3, verse 20, um, 
We aren't citizens of Canada. We, we aren't to be defined by Western culture. There are some things that, that we are so shaped by our culture and our citizenship in Canada that we think that's not okay, but, but that's the wrong judge. That's the wrong guidelines. We're working by the wrong rule book. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that drives us back to this eternal perspective. That's what he's getting at here at the end of verse 3 when he says, my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life, all of us together, our names are in in the book of life. We're bound for glory together. And so moving toward that eternal destination, standing firm in the Lord, Paul says, get involved in these ladies' lives. As un-Canadian and uncomfortable as it is, we're a family together, built not on earthly wisdom, but on heavenly principles. And that means we're called, even commanded, to get into each other's business. Can we do that? That's uncomfortable. We like to have a wall set up. We like to go to church and come home again, not be the church. We're called as citizens of heaven, as family together by heavenly principles, this eternal perspective to be the church together, to be involved in one another's lives. Now, there's there's a right way to do that and a wrong way. This isn't just permission to meddle and, and stir up trouble but specifically to the elders of the church and more generally to those who are, who are spiritually mature we're to be lovingly, gently, wisely applying God's word to one another's lives. It's not enough to have the Bible. Boy, you didn't think you'd hear me say that. It's not enough to have the Bible. We need to be specifically applying it. We need to be taking the Bible and bringing it to bear on our own lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters, Um, elders. Do you feel the weight of this as I do? Um, This is heavy. And because this kind of rubs us the wrong way as a church and it, and it just pulls us so far out of our comfort zone, let me, let me just bring up a few passages that, that show this clearly. Uh, Paul lays this out for Timothy uh, in a verse we all know, 2 Timothy 4.2. Timothy is commanded, preach the word. But then he's told, go beyond speaking. Don't just proclaim it broadly. That's where we'd like to stop. Actually, we wouldn't even like to get that far in Canadian culture, if we're honest. But, but preach the word, proclaim its truth, but then be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach it, proclaim it, and then sit down and apply it, rebuking those who are not living according to it, making reproof and personal correction with the word. That's commanded of your elders, actually of, of all of us as we look at the, the scope of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 is another. We ask you, brothers, so he's speaking to the church, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. And what do, what do those elders, those who are over you in the Lord, do they admonish you? 
Respect them as they admonish you. And esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Do you see it again? So there's, there's the admonishing of the elders, that, that specific intentional directing. But then I think this is happening all within the church. Admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This isn't, this isn't just a, here's the word, now you do what you want with it. This is being involved in one another's lives. I've missed you. I haven't seen you at church for a couple weeks. What's going on? Eh, I just don't feel like being there. That's not okay, brother. What's going on in your heart? Is there a conflict? Is there sin in your life? Let me shepherd you. Let me help you learn to pour into the church, to, to give your life to the church, to be a part of what God is doing. Coming alongside when they're speaking the truth in love, encouraging, strengthening, reproving, rebuking. It's all through the New Testament. Let me point you to one more. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Again, this is, this is the church. You who are spiritual, you who are mature in the Lord, um, do you see this responsibility that you have to one another, this sacred trust? Especially elders, as we're called to shepherd the flock of God among us. This is a, a direct command to us through Scripture. But for all of us, encourage one another, spur one another on, bear one another's burdens, correct one another, teach one another. Get involved in each other's lives in personal ways that go beyond our Canadian comfort zone. Are we ready to embrace that, church? To be a follower of Jesus is to be brought into this loving, tight-knit family, a family striving together for the gospel. And so we ought to welcome this kind of personal involvement and correction and growth together. Now, it's uncomfortable. It's painful, right? Most of you remember just a few weeks ago, I stood up here publicly repenting because a brother loved me enough to, to challenge me on something that I put on Facebook that just, well, it just wasn't great, just wasn't edifying. And, and I had to be willing to be corrected. I didn't like that. It wasn't fun. But I'm so thankful that he cared enough to do that. I'm so thankful to be a part of a church where that's happening. Because the other option is just to be angry and leave, Right? Or to start talking to other people and, oh, I can't believe he did that. Did you see how he did that? And then I don't grow and there's division and, and, and disunity and, and backbiting and gossip and, and the gospel's put aside. But no, we grow together. Even though it's not fun, we ought to, we ought to welcome that. We ought to appreciate that for what it is. And, and this is that eternal perspective. We have to see what it means to be part of the church. What it means that, that, we are, that we are citizens of heaven, having these conversations in the Lord as those whose names are written in the book of life, looking forward to, to glory together. We're on this path together. And so 
we're on the same team. There, there is no opposition between us. Only opposition between us and together and our sin and the things that would divide us. Even when we correct one another and challenge one another, um, it, it's us working together. It's us heading down the same path together and saying, oh, brother, you're, you're, you're just beginning to veer off the path. Let me, let me bring you back to the middle. Join us. Stay close. Stay together. And in partnership together, we're, we're moving down the road to eternity, trying to grow in unity as we seek Christ together. It's back to this imagery of stand firm. Stand firm for the faith of the gospel and, and these things that threaten our unity, whether they're in me or in you, they ought to be, we ought to be united together against them. That's what it means to be the church living together in light of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stand firm in love, church. Seek unity in the Lord and and see through that lens of eternity. Would you pray with me? Father, forgive us. We are so formed and shaped by our culture. We see ourselves as individuals, isolated, insulated, set apart. We do our thing, and sometimes we come in and out of the church. God, would you just break that down? Lord, help us to love the church. God, I pray for those who've been on the fringe, who've been kind of dipping their toe into the water of the church. God, that you would move in their hearts, that they would would join, that they would give themselves to the fellowship here, be connected and poured in, that, that they would identify as as part of the church. I want to pray for those who are maybe tuning in on Facebook because, frankly, they don't want to go to church. Lord, would you call them? Would you, um, would you work in their heart? They might know they have a home here, a family here that wants to welcome them and grow together with them. Give them boldness and courage to reach out, to say, hey, I want in. And Lord, I pray you would help us to know what it means to seek unity in you, that we would be so shaped and formed by the gospel that our minds would be transformed into the mind of Christ. God, that divisions and squabbles and and disunity would have no place among us. It just wouldn't stick as each of us is deferring to others considering the needs of others more than our own, the preferences of others over our own. Lord, what a, what a beautiful picture. We so desire to see the gospel playing out in that way in our church. And Lord, um, help us to work together in that, to spur one another on. Father, I pray for myself, for Arnold, for Corey, for Grant as elders, Lord, that you would give us great boldness. I have so felt the burden of this this week. This sacred trust of helping others to agree in the Lord, of speaking specifically and and lovingly, patiently reproving and rebuking. Would you help us to do that well with humility and a spirit of gentleness and a heart for, for unity? And God, would you help us as a church to see ourselves through this eternal perspective, to see um, 
who we are as the church and be lovingly bringing our brothers and sisters along beside to be, to be speaking into one another's lives and getting involved and growing together. God, we want to see your church built up and glorified. We want to see um, your church standing firm in love together. And, and Lord, that only happens as your spirit is at work in us, transforming us. So we lead on you. We need you, God. Lord, would you unite us together for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.